2 Samuel 3.26. Before we consider what the Lord has to say to us today, let's pray. Let's seek his face in his favor. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us, Lord. We are undeserving of your grace. We are undeserving of your friendship, of your lordship. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning that you would convict and comfort us each in turn as we need. Lord, you know the desires of our heart. You know, Lord, the sins of our hands. Lord, you know uh, the purposes to which you've called us. And I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse and purify us, that you would set us on the right path, that you would lead us back to your Son and through your Son to yourself. We thank you and we praise you in his name and amen. Um, Now, I'm going to explain a great deal um, as we go here, but this really is, uh, the last three weeks have been sort of a sermon in three parts, and this today is the conclusion. But if you were not here, don't worry. (laughs) I will explain where we've been. This section of Samuel that we're going to look at today is rather large, but what what it covers are two brothers, two sets of brothers, murdering innocent men. And in both cases, David reacts not the same. There are very different reactions from David. But there's a lot that is very similar about the two killings. The larger themes are what I would like to explore. But first, what we have to do is look at some important details that we're going to need to keep track of for for the future. Now, last week, just to cover where we've been, we saw that David's house is increasing while Saul's house is decreasing. Abner, who had killed Joab's brother Asahel in battle, had defected from Saul's house to David's house. Joab entered just as Abner was leaving for cutting a covenant and feasting with David. Joab is angry. Joab is not only angry because Abner killed his brother, he is angry because he's losing his position. If Abner is successful in bringing the tribes over the kingdom into David's hands, he will supersede Joab in every way. So like Peter, he rages at the king and his ways, which are mysterious to him, which are counter to what he wants the king to do. And the very next uh, set of verses is his his reaction to his anger at the king. So we turn to verse 26, and this is what we read. I'm going to read from verse 26 to 30. We're going to go in large sections here very quickly. It says, When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died, for the blood of Asahel his brother. Now afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a sindel or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Now David declares that Joab and Abishai are both guilty of shedding innocent blood. He says it. So then why doesn't he execute Joab? Why doesn't he? He's already demonstrated when the Amalekite came and said that he had killed the anointed of the Lord, that he knows what justice looks like. So why in this case does he not punish his own family member? Oh, there it is. The curse for which he calls down on the house of Joab is a frightening one. It's five different things. Two of them are important, uh, the discharge of blood and leprosy, because those would prevent the, the household from ever again entering into the worship of the Lord. 
His curse on them is that they would never again be able to go before the face of God. The spindle is uh, interesting because it means one of two things, and it's unclear. Either it was used as a crutch. It's actually uh, pointed on one end. It looks actually very much like a crutch if you look up a spindle on Google. The other thing uh, is that it's largely used by women. So he's either cursing him for being a cripple, or he's cursing him and that he would lose his fecundity and, and have to do the work of a woman for the rest of his life. Um, <laughs> modern uh, commentators cannot exactly make up their mind which is which. Which one would be more insulting? Well, I think in, in, in our day, one would be uh, more insulting than the other, but we leave it up to you. Okay, Fielder's choice. Either way, what he's doing is cursing him. He's cursing him financially. He's cursing him relationally. He's cur- cursing him spiritually. And now that may seem harsh, but what should he have done? What should he have done regardless, regardless, there you go, Molly, of the fact that it's his own family member. Joab is his nephew. So he's showing favoritism. What kind of king shows favoritism? Not a good one. Now, if you go back in the history of uh, the people of Israel, if you go to Exodus 32, don't turn there, I'm just going to explain it to you. In Exodus 32, after the golden calf incident, Moses comes down off the mountain, he destroys the golden calf, and we have this very interesting moment where the zeal of the Lord captures the people of Levi. Moses says in that chapter, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That's what the zeal of the Lord looks like. You will put to death even your own son. You will put to death even your own brother if it means justice. Now, I want to just point this out, that one of the, David's problem in this particular instance is, the, is different from everyone else. Everyone else is slaughtering brothers they shouldn't have slaughtered. David is actually not slaughtering a brother he should. And, and I just want to keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to this. This is a real problem, but I don't want to distract from, from what everyone else's problem is. Okay? We're going to be focusing on slaughtering brothers. I just want to point out that David's problem is that he's not. The one brother who ought to die in this whole situation is the one who doesn't. Now, David is actually unjust by showing undue restraint toward his own relative, who is a murderer. Murderers ought to be put to death. Now, after the murders of of 2 Samuel, chapters 1 and 4 respectively, David executes the murderers in those instances. But David's failure sends an important message to Christian leaders. No matter how faithful a leader is, no matter that he is a man after God's own heart, his work can be ruined by the follies of his aides and allies. Right? Too many ministries, too many businesses, too many families are destroyed where we are not, we are not punishing people who ought to be punished. When you surround yourself with cronies, when you surround yourself with people like Joab, you have got to be able to deal with them. If you can't, get rid of them, right? Or you're unfit to have a leadership position. This is something that we need to learn, right? Care in selecting our subordinates and lieutenants is as crucial as watching one's own life because you're responsible for those people. You're responsible for what they, what they do. Now, Jacob, uh, Joab's, can undermine the achievements of even the most faithful Davids and destroy the peace of the nation. Because what has Joab done here? All of Israel is about to have unity and peace. That's what Abner was bringing to the table. And in the absence of Abner, do you think the tribes are going to want to align with David? 
David's going to have to go out of his way to show that this was not his plan. Because Abner had gone around in the name of David, promising a bunch of things to the, to the Israelites that he's not going to be able to, del- to deliver on now because they murdered Abner. In this particular case, David is actually more like Eli. Eli had failed to punish his, uh, or prevent his sons from committing atrocious acts. And, th- and his failure to do something about them was his downfall. And we're going to see that David's failure to deal with these things is going to be his downfall. But the story carries on. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 31 through 39 says, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as, as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the weight, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while, he was, while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. So then why don't you, David? If that's what you're calling on God to do, it's in your hand to do it. And, and when justice is in your hand and, and you're able to do it, that is what God requires of you. And last week what we looked at is that David is sowing two kinds of seeds simultaneously, fruitful ones and weeds. And right here is a perfect example of that. Look at how he's mourning. Look at how he's rallying through lament the entire nation behind him, right, and, and, and beneath the Lord. And yet at the same time, he's calling someone an evil wicked doer and fails to, to give justice. Now, David's lament displays his originality as a poet. It's only four lines, which if you're going to express this kind of emotion in four lines, you have to be a very, very good poet. David captures the pathos of this untimely death of his friend Abner, likening it to an execution of a criminal, which he certainly wasn't. When you kill someone in battle, you're not a criminal. When you kill someone in battle, the brothers do not get to execute the law, the law when it comes to blood guiltiness. You can't avenge a death that happens in war. You avenge deaths that happen that are cold-blooded. Abner is not a criminal. It says, should Abner die as a fool? Now, David truly laments the murder of a great warrior and statesman who died like a fool, and in this sense, it's the biblical sense of the word, one who rebels against God and his law. Right? There's, um, we don't have capital punishment in these days, but there's long, if you want an interesting book, there's a book on the history of capital punishment. And generally in the history of it, you, you kill certain kinds of people certain ways. Right? You don't hang a king because that's beneath him. He gets to get on his knees and bow his head and you chop his head off. Now to us, who, who cares? If you're going to be executed, who cares how you're executed? But it, it's always meant a lot in cultures that understood and actually practiced capital punishment, that you don't just hang everyone from a tree. Some people deserve to be killed a little bit better than that. And and what he's saying here is that Abner did not deserve to die the way he did. 
Uh, there's a famous story where they, they put Mary, Queen of Scots, to death, um, and they, they got out the big axe, and, and it took two chops to get her head off. And when Elizabeth, Queen of England, was told this, she fainted because she was horrified, and she, repent, she wanted the whole nation to repent of dishonoring a queen in the way that they had killed Mary, Queen of Scots. And it seems fastidious to us. But it's important, and David here is saying that you killed Abner like a common criminal. Now, David is careful here to align his words and his deeds. The funeral procession, the mourning, his fasting, all of this was to win over the heart of the people, to express true grief. And he's not just playing games. a, A lot of people want to turn David into some Machiavellian character, but he's not. He truly mourns this. A man who was about to bring... Um, unity to the entire people is murdered in the, privately by men who, who should have known better. And, and he truly is lamenting this. And, and everyone believes him. People see what he's doing and they believe, okay, he's not guilty of this. He had no hand in this. And, and it pleases the people and he wends them over through his ability to mourn. Now, I, I can say as a Christian leader that this is important as a father, as a husband, as a minister, that, that we mourn well. Um, there is a way to mourn with people which is just adds to the grief. <laughs> and there is a way that you mourn with people that truly bears the burden and, and wins people over. Okay? The care that you can show in a moment like this is, is actually very rhetorically effective. But that's not why David is doing it. He's doing it the way he ought to do it, and it just happens to be winning people over because that's what this kind of display of emotion does. All Israel gets the message. The death of Abner was not the king's will. And yet, there's Joab. Okay? And Joab, it's going to be a long time before somebody finally gets Joab. He goes on and he lives a much longer life from this. And he is someone who wearies David a great deal. And if he had simply taken care of him at this moment, he wouldn't have gone on to weary him the way he did. But as of right now, even though people are pleased, there is still a civil war. There's still two kingdoms. There's not unity in the house of God. So what's going to happen next? What I'm going to read is chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and 5 to 10, because there's a bit there that we're going to save for later when we talk about Jonathan's son. But right now, this is what we read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. There's a lot of names there. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. So these guys are going to come back from their sojourning. They're, they're, they're obviously cutthroats, and they're going to go and visit Ishbosheth. It says, Now the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, Re- Re- uh, Rechab and Bahana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was uh, taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when, 
when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Where was this when Joab's murdering people? Is he going to save it for Benjaminites? That is going to become a serious problem. Now, the Hebrew says literally that Ishbosheth's hands grew weak. Now, hands are idiomatic for strength and courage. The gist of the idiom is the same as the colloquial English, he lost his grip. Ishbosheth has lost his grip. <laughs> and, and everyone watching Ishbosheth lose his grip, it's now causing Israel to be a little nervous. Israel is not happy. Israel is watching this, and what's going to happen now when you've got Ishbosheth, who's totally lost his grip, and David, and he's mourning, and what's going to happen next? Now, Joab has left everyone weaker than they were before. Abner's death leaves Ishbosheth vulnerable to attacks from the men, men like the ones who, who kill him. And throughout the Bible, there is a connection between the head as the top of the body and the head as the leader of a nation. The head of a nation, the head of the body. Ishbosheth was the head of the tribes of Israel. When the head was killed, the political fact was symbolized by the removal of his head. And giving it to David symbolizes the fact that David is now the head of the nation. Just like he received the crown off of Saul's head, he literally receives Ishbosheth's head. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's the head now. And it's like there's a less gruesome way to do this. Okay? But this is not modern man, right? Modern man, you know, they just hire an assassin who shoots somebody with a rifle from 300 yards. Okay, but this is not the only similarity here uh, with, with this, this head, right? Saul has his crown taken away. Ishbosheth actually has his head taken away. But both the murders of Abner and Ishbosheth occur in a secret place. They're done in private. They're not done in public. Both involved subterfuge and deceit. Both men, like Saul, died from wounds in their stomach, which is weird. It's really the only time where this stomach wounds is considered a big deal. But three men now have died by being stabbed in the stomach. Both cases, the murders were carried out by brothers, Joab and Abishai the first, and the Barathites the second. Thus, the deaths of the members of Saul's house and kingdom interweave with each other, and the story cycles through a sequence of events three times. First with Saul, who gets killed, stabbed in the stomach. Uh, Abner gets stabbed in the stomach. Ishbosheth gets stabbed in the stomach. Now, what is all of this about? Right? I just went through that really quickly. Why? Because I, I, I want to talk about something that is just um, at the core, the center of this whole story in the first four chapters, and that's fratricide. Fratricide. Now, what's that? Well, that's the killing of a brother. Homicide is the killing of a man. Redicide is the killing of a king. Deicide is the killing of a god. But what these chapters are about is fratricide. By the time we get to the end of David's revenge against the brothers who murdered Ishbosheth, a clear pattern emerges in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel. Now, despite the long and close relationship that David and Jonathan had, right? Think, how, how often have we heard about Jonathan and David and the love? It's not until 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, that David says of Jonathan that he is my brother. This is my brother, Jonathan. Now, why did they reserve that, that, that word all the way until we're in 2 Samuel? Because that's what 2 Samuel is about. Jonathan is David's brother. Now, Abner attempted to avoid killing Asahel for fraternal considerations. Abner said, how could I lift up my face to your brother, Joab? Abner halts Joab from pursuing their brothers with a distinct appeal. Shall the sword devour forever, Joab? 
Do you not know the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Later, Abner defends himself against false accusation in chapter 3, verse 8, by appealing to his faithfulness to Saul's brothers. Then two brother, the two brothers of Asahel lure Abner to a private place and murder him for the, for the blood of their brother. Right? There's clearly a pattern going on here. Ishbosheth's murderers are from his own tribe. They're, in a sense, cousins. They're tribe brothers, is another way of saying it. And if Jonathan is David's brother, then Jonathan's brother Ishbosheth is David's brother. So David puts to death the murderers of his brother, just like Joab and his brother put to death the murderers of their brother. Again, is there a pattern developing? Now David, Saul's son, through marriage and covenant, will establish his kingdom and keep his kingdom through a bloodbath of tribal, national, and familial fratricide. He baptizes the crown. He baptizes the throne of Israel in the blood of his brothers. Now, what is going on? Well, if we go back to the garden, Adam rejected the Lord to be ruled over by Satan. In 1 Samuel, Israel rejected Yahweh to be ruled over by a king like the nations. Adam's son flooded the field with the blood of Abel. Saul's sons will cover his throne with the blood of their brothers. The rejection of Yahweh as the Lord, as the lawgiver, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of the Promised Land, is a fall that leads directly to fratricide. If you reject the father, if you reject the head, you will start murdering your brothers, whether they're related to you or not. And when you have a lot of fratricide going on, and you want to, what, what is the root of all the fratricide? The root of the fratricide is the fact that you've rejected the father. Now, we're going to go on. Chapters 13 to 14 of 2 Samuel will tell of the rape of David's daughter Tamar by her brother. Now, track with me here for a second. Tamar is raped by her own brother. Her brother then avenges her by killing his brother. Between David's calling Jonathan my brother in 2 Samuel 1.26 and Solomon's killing of his own brother, Adonijah, in 1 Kings 2.22, Israel becomes Cain's killing field. It's like Cain and Abel in a field, and what you have is an evil brother killing good brothers, up, down, left, right, and center. It's what the whole story of the kings is about. All the kings of Israel, it's about brothers slaughtering brothers. Because what happens when you reject Yahweh as the king? What happens when you reject the brother? You become Cain. Abner's words to Joab are the central question, not just for Joab, but for the readers of the Deuteronomistic history and for you. Right? Now, wait a minute, Mike. Come on now. Slaughtering brothers, killing brothers. Seems a little hardcore, doesn't it? Right? Am I really saying that it's been like, uh, <laughs> it's been like um, a slaughterhouse? Is that what I'm saying? Now, see, what I, what I love with this is because we, we, we like to be literal when it's literal, and we like to be not literal when it's, it, right? We, we like to get this confusion going, where we're not really thinking about what the Word of God is saying. But Jesus comes along later, right? And he says what? If you hate your brother in your heart, it's the same as murder. So people read this, and they're like, whoa, 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 Mike, I am not, I am not into fratricide, man, okay? I've been to this church lots of times. Have you ever seen me stab someone? Yes, actually, just not with a knife. And that's what this story is about. 
Hey, when, when you reject the Lord as your king, fratricide results. And we say it doesn't because we're not actually, right, you know, like these guys. They're cutting heads off and hands off and nailing people to walls. And it's like, okay, I'm with you. We, we have not seen that going on. Amen. But have we actually seen one another talking about one another, talking about people in the church, talking about the Christian, uh, the, the Christian church as a whole? And what we've seen is, is people cutting off hands and heads and stabbing in the stomach. Shall the sword devour forever? The end is bitter. How long before you turn from pursuing your brethren? Right? So many of us want to pursue the world, but we're too busy pursuing one another. The guiding metaphor for kingship in 1 Samuel is requesting sons. Please give us a son. Please give us a son. The guiding theme in 2 Samuel is chasing brothers, chasing brothers, chasing brothers. Now, Israel is a Canaan-able people, an Abner and Asahel people, a Joab and Abishai people. But what are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be a David and Jonathan people, right? David and Jonathan here, do they love each other? Do they have a covenant? Do they have a reason to have envy and distrust and disloyalty? They actually have more reasons to hate each other than almost all of these characters, and yet they love one another. That's the kind of people that Israel is supposed to be, but that's not the kind of people they are, are they? The failure of brotherhood is one of the central themes of the Bible. Human experience shows that relationships within the family are often the most difficult. Now, when I was being raised, we had what I called the sibling song. Did you guys ever sing the sibling song? Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do everything better than you. And I literally... Remember, dropping a pass in a football game and hearing my brother's voice singing that song from the sidelines. I remember stealing my sister's ice cream and sitting up in a tree singing the song because whatever she can do, I can do better, including eating the ice cream. Right? What are familial relationships generally like? Full of love and generosity and goodness? Right? I mean, now, some of us, right, I have siblings. It's not a killing field all the time. But it is, I would say, there's a great deal of our lives that have been defined by this kind of hostility and envy, right? Mom's got a favorite, or dad's got a favorite, or dad spent more time with you, or you got better clothes. And it's true. I mean, I have one daughter. She's probably the only kid who's gotten brand new clothing. And I remember that, (laughs) you know, bringing sweet princess home from Fred Meyer and having her new Nike shoes, and all the brothers are like, what's up with this? I didn't know we bought clothes new. (laughs) And so I taught them the sibling song, which my wife loves, by the way. Now, what did Cain ask? What What was his question of God? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, that's the epitome of the heartless indifference toward those whom God has told us to love. Right? I mean, we'll talk about loving neighbors. Who are the closest neighbors? The ones living in your own household. How are those relationships going? The closest Christian neighbors you have are the ones in this church that you attend. Well, maybe not, actually. But should they be? That's a good question. But how how are those relationships going? How's the household of God doing? Right? What we have in Ukraine, this will be, the, I promise, the only comment I make about it during this sermon. But you have two versions of Eastern Orthodox who are now bombing one another. And if you want to know what's going on there, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church rejected the, the 
Russian Orthodox Church. Did you guys know that? People talk about all kinds of things. But <laughs> the, the, the leaders of, of one Russian group, or of the Russian Orthodox Church, um, have now, are, are they want to reclaim the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. That's 50% of what this whole thing is about. Right? So what happens to the household of God when you reject the Father? Look at Eastern Europe. But I want to say that that's actually, you know, how is your house doing? Am I my brother's keeper? Are you? Now, the first epistle of John cites the story of Cain as the cautionary tale. The apostle John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right? You, love, you love God? Well, how is it going loving Im- his image bearers? The love of brothers, then, is a concrete image of the most fundamental message of the Bible. Genesis recounts, right, in the very beginning, think, what is the story of Genesis about? What is it littered with? you got Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. It's like the hate between brothers is what <laughs> propels the plot along. And it's what propels the plot along and when you get to Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. There is strife between brothers even in the womb. Rebecca was told that two nations strive within her. Perez and Zerah, sons of Judah by Tamar, struggle in the womb to see who's going to be born first. Right? But no, no, no. Children are born innocent. (laughs) But here you have them literally elbowing one another in the eye, in the womb, to see who gets out first. Right? And that's like an epitome of, of brotherhood right there. Anything you can do, I can do better. Rachel was fiercely jealous of her sister Leah's ability to get pregnant. Right? This manifests itself in both, both men and women. Was she happy for her sister that she was able to conceive? Well, that's God's, right? Fruitfulness comes from God. Amen. No, she was bitter and angry about it. Later in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers, his physical brothers and sisters, are contentious. What are you doing, you madman? Okay? The prodigal son's brother objected to the mercy that his father showed his brother, and the famous story about Martha coming to the Lord Jesus to complain about her sister. In Isaiah 19.2 and Ezekiel 38.21, both record the horror that every man's sword will be against his brother in the day of the Lord, in the day of the Messiah. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 10, Luke 21. If you go in the book of Acts, everywhere that Paul goes, who are the number one people who want to kill him? People of his own household, the household of Israel. Now, while the narratives tell the ugly reality, biblical laws and proverbs evoke an ideal. A poor brother should be ex- uh, extended generosity in Deut- Deuteronomy 15. Never be humiliated. You should never humiliate your brother, according to Deuteronomy 25. The sower of discord among brothers is an abomination to the Lord, it says in Proverbs 6.19. Brother is born for adversity. Now, <laughs> I like that one. I like to quote that one. My brother and I, uh, born for adversity. Oh, you mean he was born for my day of adversity to help me. Oh. Well, I should call him when I'm done. 
Now, Christ defines fellow believers, fellow doers, as the truest form of family. What does he say? He says, when a crowd told him that his brothers and sisters were outside, his response was, who are my brothers? Now, doesn't that sound like what Cain would say? Who are my brothers? Well, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He is defining his yesed. He's defining his loyalty on those who obey the Lord God. He defines fellow believers, fellow doers, as the truest form of family, even more so than his own blood. In this context, Jesus himself becomes the firstborn of me brethren, is what Paul says in Romans 8.29. The community of believers in the New Testament is alluded to more often by the plural word brethren, which includes women, than by any other figurative language. They are called the brethren more than they're called anything else. Brotherhood is based on similarity of belief and on the equality of believers. In the Gospels, Jesus emphasizes two relational issues dangerous to brotherhood, a lack of forgiveness and factionalism. Right relationship is based on the ability to forgive. Jesus sets the standard. He says what? Right? A brother can sin against you 70 times 7, and you must forgive him for, from the heart. 70 times 7. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is actually figurative language. Okay? 70 times 7, that's a figurative number. It means infinity times. It means you're supposed to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It's a number so big you're not going to reach it. Now, I remember Hillary Clinton uh, quoted this verse in a speech a few years ago, and she said, don't you worry, we're keeping score. Right? Wait a minute, what? And I remember, I was told this one time by a Sunday school teacher at, at VBS, I think it was, and I did. I, I said the same thing. I was like, listen, I got this little notepad that my dad used to give us, the cops carry, you know, and you flip it open, and you get your pencil out, and you're like, that's seven times this week, bro. Okay? I'm counting. I'm going to remember this at Christmas time. What God wants is what? It, the, an amount of forgiveness that is, gr- is equal to his own. Right? Every time you come back to him, does he say, well, oh, listen, you, you reach the number. Seven, seven times 70, you hit, you hit the limit. Right? I would have hit the limit with three weeks after becoming a Christian. First Corinthians chapter three, verse two through four. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and, beha- and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So not only do we not forgive one another like God forgives us, but we break into this factional system where we say, okay, I'm not of Christ, I'm of Paul or Calvin or Arminius, our good brother, which I like Arminius. You know, he was way more of a Calvinist than most Calvinists, but that's a story for another day. Now, the church is strengthened by the images of unity and equality that brotherhood evokes. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there is no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind, in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.11, for this has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The apostles' language of brotherly love is passionate, it's intimate, it's affectionate, and it, and it sounds like who? Jonathan and David. Christ wants us to be a Jonathan and David people. This is, listen, this is Paul 
This is what Paul says about the saints, the brothers and sisters in the various churches. He says that they are beloved and longed for. He's writing to them. He says, I love you, and I'm longing for you. In Philippians 4.1, Paul tells the Thessalonians that he is endeavoring eagerly to see your face with great desire. 1 Thessalonians 2.17. And he encourages the church members to greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16.20. Now, doesn't that sound like Jonathan and David? Right? Their love was greater than that of a man for a woman. I mean, if, if I get a letter from a dude and he's telling me he's going to come give me a holy kiss, that's how I would feel. Right? I was like, this love is not like other people's love. But we're a little creeped out by that kind of language, aren't we? Like, if I, <laughs> every Friday I send out a text, I'm longing desirously to see your face on Sunday, right? People would stop coming here. <laughs> if the church ever gets too big. What I like is that Peter says to obey the lawful government. He does. He says, but he says to love the brotherhood. He doesn't say love the government. He says obey it. He says love the brotherhood. That's 1 Peter 2.17. Now, in some, the language of brotherhood means something more than simply a group of believers, doesn't it? It is the most common and familiar designation. We are supposed to be Jonathan and David, covenanted together before God in love and unity. But we become Abners and Asahels and Joabs and Abishais and Barathites and Absaloms. We can murder between our houses and within our houses. In our reading earlier, James addressed the household of God by saying that what causes quarrels and strife, fights and murder, is what? Envy, like Joab's and the Barathites. Instead, we make friends with the world. We reject God, and this rejection of God leads to Cain's killing field. This is what the story is about. If you reject the law of God, if you reject him as a lawgiver, and you become a lawgiver, it's going to be Cain's killing field. The causes of the worldly... And the factionalism of the world comes in here where it does not belong, and it separates those who are meant to be united. Preferences of food and drink, of education, of work, of entertainment, of politics, and many other things, things lead to alliances with the world and strife amongst brothers. James says that, this, that we speak evil against one another, against brothers, because we have rejected the law. That's what Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twelve. He says, and because lawlessness will be increased... The love of many will grow cold. Right? And we look around at the coldness of people's hearts. We look around at the lack of love. And, and what happens in, this, in these circles if you say, well, you know what we need to do is restore the law? <laughs> well, what is up with that? What are you now? Are you going to preach the law? When the, obedience to the Father, loving the Father, the Lordship of the Father is what gives you love for brothers and sisters. There's no other way, Right? In a household where everybody loves dad and everyone is obeying dad, how do the kids usually get along? James chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want to I make a distinction here because this really throws us, right? Well, God, you know, what are you doing judging me, judgy? Look at you all judgy over there. Now, there is a difference, isn't there, between my looking at something you're doing and saying, well, that's kind of not good. Right? That's not good. You shouldn't do that. Versus this kind of judgment. I now declare before this court of the heaven beings that you are going to burn in hell. 
That's different, isn't it? And, and what we want to do is make the two things the same. Well, how dare you judge me? Well, I'm not saying you're going to burn in hell, but I'm going to say if you keep going down that path, you're going to get hurt. You're, you're going to go the wrong direction. Now, we can say that to one another, right? But what we have lost is, is the fact that we, this, this deep love and trust We've lost it when it comes to our relationship with God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have lost it when it comes to one another. Do you trust, right? When I call you up and I'm like, hey, we got to talk. How many of you would be like, I'm sure he has the best in mind for me? Right? And, and I'm, I'm your pastor. I'm supposed to do that. But what happens if a brother does that, right? Some guy from church calls you, some lady from church that you don't usually talk to calls you and says, I need to talk to you. How much trust do you have there? I have to be honest with everyone. I'd be a little nervous myself. I'd be like, I'm busy. <laughs> right? We, we have lost the love and the trust, the companionship. We've lost the relationship that makes it possible to say to people, you're going the wrong direction. It, we've lost the love and trust um, that we are supposed to have that that's, gives us the ability to say, listen, you're going in the right direction. I'm, I'm judging what you're doing, and this is good, what you're doing, and you should keep doing it. I, I love you, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm judging what you're doing. It's not good. You should stop. Let's talk about why and how. Now, the Barathites become judges and executioners, don't they? The two men who kill Ishbosheth. That's what Jesus says we are we're to do, um, that we do in our hearts towards one another. We become judges and we become executioners. We deny the life of Christ to one another by usurping the judgment of God. That guy's not a Christian. That, that's, that's heresy. Oh, perhaps it's maybe an idea you've never heard before. I, I, really, I don't really trust a lot of us to say what's heresy or not, frankly. Right? How about, what do you think? Do you think most of us know the breadth and width and height and length of Christianity enough to say what is actually in bounds of orthodoxy and what's not? Now, are you like the Barathites? Are you able to discern who should be king? Who should be alive? Who really is the anointed of the Lord? Who really is a Christian? Who is worthy of their pastorate? Who is worthy to be called teacher in Israel? Who is worthy of his position? Who is worthy of her children? Who is worthy of their money, their house, their job, their joy? How in the world did that guy end up with that? Right? And what you do is, instead of an obeyer of the law, you become the law. And you judge now. You're like, oh, no, this is not good, what is happening here. And you're like, well, why? Who, who, who's in charge of this world? Right? Why is what the person is doing bad? Is it because they're violating the law of God or because they're violating the law of you? Are you harsher in your criticism and judgment of the household of God than you are of the world? Now, I really love all of you, and I really want you to go home and think about this. Are you harsher in your judgments of people in the household of God or outside? Why? It's easier to be a compassionate wokester when the victim is unnamed and out there somewhere, right? Oh, you guys really got to just, you tight wad conservatives. I just love these poor people, these poor, unlovable, hapless people. Okay, what, what are their names and where, where do they live? What are you talking about? Now, how about that person at church whose name you do know, right? It's a, lot e- it's a lot harder to love that unlovable person than some nameless, faceless, unlovable person out in the world. 
And the fa- false gospel of social justice is doing, it, it's convincing us of this. Oh, well, I'm loving the unlovable. I'm loving those people who are out there in the darkness and don't know any better. And you have all this love and all this compassion. Okay, what are their names? Where are they? What's their address? What are they, what are they up to? But then you come here, and you know one another's names, and you know one another's circumstances, sort of. And yet, how hard is it to love these unlovable people? It's a lot harder to love unlovable people whose names you know. Right? I can do anything better than you. Now, it's easier to be compassionate with people whose names you don't know. But when it comes to the local church to which you belong, to the Christian community in our region, and our nation, our denomination, the church universal, do you feel towards them as Jonathan did for David? Or Job, Joab for Abner? Or Asahel for Abner? Or the Barathites for Ishbosheth? Or David for Joab? These brothers fail to deal with one another as brothers, right? Because when you have a brother who's, an error, who's erring and it's in your power to do justice, you should do it. On the other side, should you pursue brothers the way that Asahel was pursuing Abner? Now, what we tend to forget, right? We, 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 this is always comes down, and I like what's going on in this story. I'm going to go and read a verse here, in verse 12, or sorry, verse 11. I'm, I'm even messed up. Verse 10. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. Now, I find this so massively ironic, because is that the same, are those the same words that mean good news in the Gospels? No, actually, because it's Hebrew. <laughs> but let's just think about how God works and how metaphorical that is. They think they're bringing good news about what they've done for the kingdom of God, and it's actually bad news for everybody. Now, how are you willing to consider the fact that what, perhaps what you're doing that you would call good news for the kingdom of God is really bad news for you and everybody else? We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do, right? We're not good at judging our own hearts. What is it? Our hearts are evil and not to be trusted. So why is it that I can sit in my house and understand your heart and your motivation? What seems to be wrong with that? Right? Oh, I, <laughs> I went on Facebook and I struck a great blow for the kingdom of God. You're like, all you did was sow disunity here, there, and everywhere. And you look like an idiot doing it. I totally lost my place. <laughs> now, here's the question that I have got to ask you. Do you know who the anointed of the Lord are? Did David know who the anointed of the Lord is? Right? When, when the Amalekite comes to him and says, listen, I, I raised my hand against the anointed of the Lord. I made this point in, the, in, the, in that particular sermon that that represents baptism. Because the, his loyalty to the anointer in heaven meant that he was loyal to the anointed. Now, you all receive the waters of baptism that separate you from the world, set you apart as holy, they, they place you in the Lord Jesus Christ as the king, just like Saul became king. And, and what we do is we don't judge based on that. We become the lawgivers ourselves, and we judge on criteria that's completely different. David says, listen, I know who Saul is. Nobody knows better than who Saul is than David. And yet, how did he respond when David was killed? How did he respond when, da- when Saul fell, when Saul was murdered? How did he respond? He could tell the difference between the anointed of the Lord and those who are not. 
C.S. Lewis said that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Now, does that define your love for the brotherhood? Or is there all kinds of inexcusable nonsense going on that you're not going to stand for? Now, let's, let, let's consider all of these chapters. The Amalekite thought he was bringing good news. Was it? Was it good news for him? Now, the Barathites, they think they're bringing good news. Is it good news for them? Is it good news for Israel? Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 12. This is, this is the end. This is the end of the story. Now, listen to this. David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now, at the end of this, right, these, these stories, at the end of Cain's killing field, what do you have? A pile of disembodied parts. Is it a whole functioning body? So if I have an, uh, right, I got an Orthodox leg and a Catholic head and a Protestant torso, and I got it lying down here on the floor in front of me, is that the body of Christ? If you look around the church, is it a pile of disembodied parts, or is it a whole functioning body, healthy body like it's supposed to be? At the end of all of this, the end of the rejection of the Lord, the end of the fratricide is a pile of disembodied body parts. And that's gruesome, but I really want you to think about this, right? I want you to think about it like the fact that God said Abel's blood was crying from the ground. His blood was screaming from the ground, it says in Genesis. If you look at the Hebrew, it's terrifying. Imagine like a giant bloody mouth screaming out from the ground because he was murdered. The end of chapter 4, the end of the killing field, results in a pile of disembodied parts, not a healthy functioning body. Now, this is the judgment of God for failure to recognize the love of the brethren and, and, and the lawgiver. When you reject the Father, this is what you get. Now, if you look around Christendom, isn't it a pile of Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants? Right? Are, are Catholic people Christians? Is it possible? Is it possible for the Orthodox people to be Christians? Is it possible for Baptists? I'm kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> what, mere Christendom, we're so far from it. It's just a pile of disembodied parts. It's not a live, functioning, whole being. Now, if you look around the church here, is that how you would describe your relationship with the people in this room? Are we just a bunch of right, disconnected, disembodied parts sitting here in these chairs every week? Or is it a healthy, functioning whole body? Is our church full of Jonathans and Davids? Or is it full of Abishais and Asahels? Christ's body was broken so that we might be healed. Right? So this is what you have in the end. Is Christ or chaos? You have his broken body that is given to us so that we, having our sins forgiven, might be unified in it. Right? And that, that's it. You have his broken body or a pile of disembodied parts. We come here and we recognize that you're an image bearer and I'm an image bearer and they're all image bearers sitting next to us and all of them were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. All of them eat of the same loaf, which makes us one whole group, one body of the Lord God. Now, all over the world, people are also participating in the same bread. Now, does that make them part of our body or not? Right? Oh my gosh, but have you, did you hear the songs they sang before they ate the bread? Did you hear the nonsense the preacher was preaching before? 
this, this is what we do. We take the law into our own hands and we judge in, in ways that we were never given to judge. It's Christ or chaos. It's his broken body or a pile of disembodied parts. What, what kind of Christendom do you want? What kind of local church do you want? What kind of Christian family do you want? So, and, and if we're right, because if you're dis, disembodied at home and you're not unified at home, and then you come here and you're an ununified family and you're an ununified family over here, what are we going to build? What are we going to do? What are we going to accomplish? Who are we even at that moment besides people who need to do a great deal of repenting? As we go forward in this church, as we go forward in our relationships with other churches, it's not the songs we sing. It's not the translation of the Bible we use. It's not the creed we use. Right? It, it doesn't matter if we add the phililoquy or not. Those Eastern Orthodox guys, they don't even add the right words to the creed, those bunch of morons. And, and, and are they not of us? Are the people sitting here not of you? When you say your family and you think about that in your mind, who are you thinking of? Your wife? <laughs> Just your kids? The kind of Christendom that we want to build starts in our own homes and in our own local church. And if we're incapable of doing it there, we're incapable of doing it anywhere. Christ's body was broken so that we might be healed. Christ's body was broken so that, we might, that he might revo- remove the dividing wall between you and I. Christ's body was broken that we might be united. And so it's him or it's chaos. Now, it's Christ's broken body for us, or it's a disembodied pile of parts, okay? Now, here's my question. Which brother are you? Because if you go away from here and you don't think about that, this is pointless. Which of these brothers are you? Which of these brothers do you need to become? Right? Which of these brothers do you need to repent of, and which of these brothers do you need to turn and be more like? And that's, that, that's how we actually, right? If, if we're not a people who can, who can live according to the gospel here, we have nothing to offer the world. Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for difficult words and harsh realities. I pray, Lord, that we would not um, let our unity and our oneness be anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is anything in our hearts, our minds, if there's anything in our lives, Lord, in which we have made friendship with the world, in which we have denied the unity and oneness that we have with one another, I pray, Lord, that you would show us that we would repent, that we would be unified around Christ's broken body, that we would be healed, that we would love one another as we have been loved, that we would forgive one another as we have been forgiven, Lord, and that we would seek the unity and the peace of the people of God. And amen.